If you'd like to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In the Black Pew Bibles, that's uh, page 993. So if you want to grab one of those and follow along, uh, we'll get to the text in in just a moment. Uh, So we are covering today, or or Paul is writing to Timothy today, um, on the subject of slavery. And uh, slavery in in that society, it was an integral part of the social structure. Uh, And so Paul doesn't endorse it or condemn it in in this passage or in others. Uh, But he does recognize it as a part of the culture, a part of the world that they lived in. And he told them how they were to deal with it. Um, One one thing to note uh, is that nowhere does... Christ or the early church advocate any sort of massive social upheaval. The spread of the gospel certainly resulted in that, but that was not that that was not the the, the means. That was not the the the, um, the intended result. But it was a side effect of people living together with changed hearts. And so, rather than starting with a behavior or starting with the societal structure. God begins his work here on earth by giving us new hearts. Hearts that are increasingly compassionate, increasingly patient, increasingly understanding. Hearts that are, or, or at least should be, filled with love for God and love for other people. Hearts that are changed so that our actions, our words, our attitudes, and our thoughts begin to change as well. And so if we want to see true change in society... Um, it's important to see that the Bible doesn't uh, tell us that that laws or politics or reason or logic will be the means of that change. But God will change the world through changing our hearts first. Um, I had a conversation with a friend uh, regarding the ongoing um, drug epidemic in our area. And he, he said, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could just, you know, find the budget to hire 10,000 more police officers and, and make the, you know, just make the problem go, go away. Um, and I said, you know, it's important to remember that you can do that, but none of that enforcement, none of the application of law is ever going to change somebody's heart. And that substance abuse issue is simply a symptom of heart that is broken. Uh, there's, there's another subject that we've talked about in the past that, uh, that comes into play here as well, and that is that uh, Paul writes a lot of times in, in, in sort of a two-part, um, two-part idea. He gives an eternal principle, and then he gives a specific application. Uh, we, we saw this back in Ephesians 4 uh, when he gave the eternal principle, you know, don't walk as unbelievers. As Christians, we're supposed to walk differently from the world around us. And then he goes on to give very specific applications of that, right? Don't lie, don't steal, don't speak with bitterness and anger. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're going to see today in, in this passage as well. Uh, so we're only going to do two verses uh, it's probably not going to be any shorter than usual, so I apologize for that. So 1 Timothy 6, uh, starting right in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants 
regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Uh, one thing to note, if there's ever a disagreement between the uh, text that I read and the text that's in the bulletin, that's because I didn't do my job properly and update Bonnie. So Bonnie put in the bulletin what I had told her to put in the bulletin. I changed it and didn't tell her. So that's on me, not on you. Uh, so the first example that Paul uh, wants to deal with here is the situation where you have a slave working for a non-believing master. Um, and specifically, somebody who, even by unbelieving standards, is not really a good master. Um, and, and we know that. Uh, let all those who are under a yoke, so that's, that's a, a, the, the piece of wood that you would put across the shoulders of, of a pair of oxen to help them bear that load. Uh, and it was very, very heavy. Uh, Jesus used it as a metaphor back in Matthew 11, right? When he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, my burden that I put upon you is easy, and my burden is light. And so these are not good masters, but Paul tells these slaves to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So he doesn't say that they are worthy of all honor, and I think that this is a very important distinction. He's not saying they're your master and so they deserve your respect. He's saying even if they're not worthy of your respect, even if they're not worthy of your honor, you still need to show them honor as if they were. So he's not saying that the master is in the right. He's not saying that the master is superior to you as a slave. He's not even saying that the master is actually worth honoring. But he's saying treat them as if they were worthy to be honored in that way. And he gives a very specific reason. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So he says, your job as a Christian the Great Commission, right? To go and make disciples of all the nations. Your job as a Christian and the condition of your heart before God is of greater importance than anything else, right? So your witness around you, your ability to show the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is more important than your comfort, ultimately, right? Because the mark of a Christian is to treat others as being more important than you are. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 11. Or uh, rather, this is the point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, 
Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he goes on to say, I did this because it was worth it for me to be able to tell you about the gospel, for me to preach the gospel to you. And so just as Paul considered all of these things, these beatings and and danger that he was encountering, he is telling these slaves that the integrity of their witness, the integrity of their lives, is worth more than the indignity that they suffer by showing honor to somebody who is dishonorable. And so he, uh, Paul is, is giving this teaching essentially as a counter to rebellious behavior on, behalf, on the part of the slaves, right? So it's very possible that, uh, especially in the early days of the church, that this Christian slave might be the only Christian that this master knows. And so if that's the case, if the only Christian that this master knows is rebellious, and dishonors them, what sort of light does that paint our Savior in? Does that behavior bring honor to the name of Christ that that we bear as Christians? Does it uphold the teaching of the gospel? And the contrast to that is is, the good behavior of an exemplary servant. That behavior brings honor to the name of Christ and a desire on those who see it to better understand What makes that person tick? What motivates them to act like that? And even if the master doesn't believe, it certainly does give him a reason to allow his slaves, his servants, to participate in the life of the church, right? It makes them better slaves. It makes them better servants. And so even even if the master doesn't believe, that good behavior, that exemplary exemplary behavior on the part of the Christian slave is used to spread the gospel. And so verse 2 addresses a, a, a different scenario. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So to slaves with believing masters, don't disrespect them. Yes, you are brothers in Christ. Yes, you are both adopted children of God. But that shouldn't lead to any sort of disrespect. You should still be model servants, doing good work without grumbling or complaining, because the work that is going on, the work that you are doing, is serving a brother. You are serving a brother, you are building up the body, you are loving your brother. And it's, uh, if you remember back in Ephesians, there was, there was a parallel instruction to the masters, right? They need to be exemplary model masters, treating their servants with respect and with dignity, loving them, and honoring that, um, that scriptural requirement to submit to them by leading them well. Now, it's helpful, I think, in, in this situation to put some names to it and, and sort of walk through what it looks like. And so I want you to consider for a moment Stan and Mark. As I, as I see Dave back there, I could have rhymed it and said Dave the slave, but I'm 
not nearly that clever. So, so stand the slave, mark the master. Now, before either one of them became Christians, this would be a, a problematic adversarial relationship, right? You know, Stan is going to resent his slavery some, and he's probably going to do the bare minimum that he can to keep from getting beaten. I mean, that's human nature, right? Everybody understands that. There are very few people who are going to be in that situation, and they're going to say, man, I'm going to do the very best that I can. That, that's just not in our nature. And Mark, the master, is going to just sort of naturally look down on Stan and be frustrated with his laziness and be frustrated with his, with his lack of a, a attentiveness to his job. And so in this scenario, we first want to look at what happens to Stan and his life living as Mark's slave after Stan believes the gospel. So there's going to be a change, right? According to this passage, Stan isn't going to be disrespectful. He's, he's not going to be trying to, to shirk his responsibilities. He's going to do his job, and he's going to do it well, do it cheerfully. And so how is Mark going to feel about that? He loves it. This is great, right? You had this disrespectful, lazy servant who all of a sudden became a hard worker and started getting the job done. Parallel to that, Stan, in obedience to the Great Commission, is going to begin explaining his newfound faith to the other slaves. And as they come to Christ, what happens to them? They become less disrespectful. They become less lazy. And Mark becomes even more and more pleased as an unbeliever that his slaves are becoming Christians. Now, in this thought experiment, imagine that Mark is brought to faith by one of his friends. And so Mark and his friend go to church for the first time. And Mark discovers that Stan, his slave, is an elder at the church that he goes to. That Stan is standing up there and teaching God's word. So you have the master coming to be taught by the slave. That's a little awkward, right? I mean, it could be the source of, of some pretty significant shame and resentment and animosity between the two of them. But what Paul is saying here is that Stan, regardless of his um, equality with Mark within the body of Christ, should continue to serve and should do so all the more readily because they are now brothers. They are members of the same body. Does your hand feel resentment towards your feet because you have to tie your shoes? I mean, no, that's, that's foolish, right? I mean, you, do you, are your teeth resentful of the fact that they constantly have to chew food to, to nourish the rest of the body? No. Those are what they are. They are filling their intended role 
and building up the body through their work. So Paul is saying, now, Stan, now you can rejoice. You can be glad about this because this is not now just some guy that you are helping, but it's a brother in Christ. You should be excited about that. Now, ultimately, when we carry, when we carry these ideas forward to their logical conclusion, the outcome always will be freedom. Because just as the gospel proclaims spiritual freedom, when we take those ideas and we implement them well and faithfully, we discover that that belief is incompatible with this idea of slavery. So one of the things that we see when we look back in history is that when you introduce Christianity into a society, within a few hundred years, the idea of slavery disappears out of that culture. The one exception to that is the United States. Um, we were blinded by our greed and attempted to use Scripture to justify our continued um, support of the institution of slavery. But ultimately even in the United States, we found that it was difficult to reconcile that idea that we talked about last week of, of people being created in the image of God. It's difficult to reconcile that idea with the practice of owning slaves. Because you can't go to a slave auction and say, yes, that person is created in the image of God. He bears the image of God and I'm going to buy him and make him do what I tell him to. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. But the change came to society, not as a result of the application of law, but as a result of changed hearts. Now, despite how uh, we may feel sometimes, we no longer have this slave-master relationship to work with, right? Right? But instead, we see the application of, that, of these eternal principles today being that employee-boss relationship, right? Now, we in America, to some extent, are uh, existing in a, in a meritocracy. So we believe that we should treat people the way that they deserve, right? And so if you want to be respected then you need to be worthy of respect. If you are not respected, then it's because you don't deserve to be respected. If you are a good person and do good things, then you'll get ahead. If you're a bad person and do bad things, then you won't get ahead. And it's important to identify that that is an American idea that is not necessarily a Christian idea. The Christian idea in contrast to that, is grace, unmerited favor, a favor, a respect, if you will, that we didn't deserve. If you'd like to turn, I'm going to jump back to Matthew 18. Uh, starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, 
one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Uh, at minimum wage, that would be about $4 billion. 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and gave him the debt. Now, was that anything that that servant could ever hope to repay? Repay? Four billion dollars. Gary, how long is it going to take you to repay four billion dollars that you owe? It will take you an eternity to repay four billion dollars. Realistically, it, it could be four, it could be 40. You're never going to be able to pay it off. But it was forgiven. But it was forgiven. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, about eight grand at minimum wage. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. He should pay all his debt. See, the Bible tells us that the natural state of mankind is rebellion against God. It says in, in the opening verses of Isaiah, God says to Isaiah, Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. That rebellion, the word that we use for that, is sin. And we have all sinned. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all been guilty of that sort of rebellion. And the wages for that sin, the price that we pay for that rebellion, is death. We have a debt that we owe as a result of that rebellion that we have no hope of ever being able to repay, no hope of ever being able to come up with what is owed God as a result of our rebellion. But we read in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Mankind and us individually as human beings we are not worthy of God's love. We are not deserving of his consideration. But the offense of the gospel is that he loved us anyway. It says in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion against him, Christ died for us. We didn't earn it or deserve it. 
He didn't see something in us that was worth saving, but he did it anyway as a demonstration of his mercy and of his grace. And so if we have been given God's favor, if we have been given his love when we didn't deserve it, then just as the forgiven servant had an obligation to forgive his fellow servant, we have an obligation to show favor, to show love to those around us. And in this particular case, the application that Paul is making is that we have an obligation to show favor, to show love, to show honor, to show respect to our bosses. No, they don't necessarily deserve to be shown favor, but neither did we. We show it anyway. And when we do that, we echo, we proclaim, we mirror the gospel. I was a sinner, deserving of death, with a debt I couldn't pay, but God gave me life anyway. He forgave me. You don't necessarily deserve my respect, but I'm going to show it anyway. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread. If he is thirsty, give him water. That's in Proverbs 25. There's an additional principle that I think comes to bear uh, out of the book of Colossians. It says in Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So when we work, we treat those that we work for as being worthy of all honor from 1 Timothy. And we work for them, not as if we're working for failable, broken human beings, but we work for them as if we were working for the Lord directly. And when we do that, we proclaim that our value as believers is not found in the systems of this world. See, the world would tell us that we have a limited time here on earth, and we need to make the most of it, right? So if you don't get what you think you deserve from a relationship, move on. If you're not feeling fulfilled in your job, just quit. It's fine. If you aren't getting what you think you deserve from your marriage, find another one. If you're not getting what you think you deserve from a church, there's one just down the street. It's fine. Just move on. But all of these beliefs are predicated on the idea that our lives are too short to be wasted on the ungrateful and the unresponsive and the unhelpful. But our hope as believers is not in what we can achieve in this life. Right? Our hope is not in what we can do, but what God has done for us. So our value is not in what we can get, but rather what has been given to us. We were spiritual orphans who were adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. We had hearts of stone that God changed into hearts of flesh. We were dead in our sins, and he has made us alive in Christ. And so when we find our value, when we find our worth, 
our importance in who we are in Christ rather than who we are in this world and what we can get from it during our time here, then we will find that our attitude towards these things changes. We can endure. We can persevere. For those of you who don't know, I grew up on a potato farm. Pretty small scale. At the time, it was one step above abject misery. Um, In retrospect, it wasn't quite that bad, but it seemed like it at the time. And we spent... I mean, I can remember being out on the harvester and there was snow on the ground and it was just mud and wet and cold everywhere. And I hated it. (laughs) I hated it. But a few years back, the farmer that my father was working for needed just a few more hours in the field to get done for the fall. And it was going to rain for like the next week. And so he said, we're going to stay late. And dad said, can you come help, please? And so I went, and I worked on the harvester again. And you know, that four or five hours, that wasn't so bad, right? Because I knew that that's all that there was. There was just four or five hours of misery and suffering. And on the other side of it, there was a hot shower and some hot cocoa and a nice warm bed. And that was fine, right? And so in the same way, we can endure in this life. We can endure because these are light and momentary afflictions when we compare them, when we see them in the light of an eternity of glory. And so can we show respect or honor to a master who isn't worthy of it? Yeah, we can do that in light of glory. Can we serve a brother even though we shouldn't necessarily be in that situation? Sure, for a while, in light of glory. But what do we do with that? If we are supposed to show respect and honor even where it's not due. Where do we go from here? And so there's a challenge this week uh, for you to identify one person who by virtue of their position should have your respect but doesn't. Bad boss, miserable colleague, a client... So thinking of them, how would your behavior to them change if they had your respect? How would your behavior to them change if they had your respect? And this was the question that when I wrote it was a little uncomfortable for me. How would you talk about them to other people if you respected them? And then lastly, if you are feeling some dissonance there, some difference between what you should be doing and what you have been doing, 
is there an apology in order? And as I was working on this, uh, I was convicted. There's an individual that um, we are in an organization together, and he serves a particular role. And I had not been showing him the respect that was due him, according to this passage, the honor that was due him. And so this morning, I sent him an apology. I said, Mr. So-and-so, I'm writing to you today to ask for your forgiveness. I've been convicted, and this is a believer that I'm writing to. I have been convicted by my sermon text for this week regarding my attitude towards you in your role as... I said, there's a certain amount of dissatisfaction in my heart. And then I kind of explained why. And I have allowed that dissatisfaction to fester into discontent and disrespect in my thoughts and words. My sermon preparation for this week has revealed to me the sinful nature of those attitudes, and I am writing to repent, and in the spirit of Matthew 18, to ask for your forgiveness. Please pray for me that God would allow me to channel my discontent into productive ends that would build up the body, rather than unproductive grumbling and resentment. This is the hardest thing that I have done in months. This galls me to admit my own sin. It galls me to say I've been wrong. I have not been showing respect. I have not been treating the leader of this organization as being worthy of all honor. But I can look at it now. I can look at this passage of Scripture and say, God revealed sin in my heart through it. And the right response when we encounter a situation like that, and we will encounter situations like that, the right reaction is repentance and reconciliation. If you are going to the temple to make an offering and you remember that your brother has something against you, go and make it right before you make your offering. So I understand that it can be difficult. I understand that it can be right on that line between humbling and humiliating to send that email. But it's important. Our integrity as believers and the state of our hearts as Christians depends on us faithfully reading God's word and when it says something, doing it. So I offer that by way of encouragement that even when it is difficult, It's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we forget 
sometimes who we are. And we forget who you are. We raise ourselves up, make ourselves to be more important than we actually are. God, and we reduce you to a genie that we come to when we need something, when we have a request. And God, I am thankful for the way that your word has spoken into my life in the past week. And I am thankful that you gave to an undeserving servant forgiveness. And you gave grace, Father, where there was no there was no human way. But you gave grace and you gave it abundantly. So Father, I thank you for that. And I ask that you would give us all that grace, that you would give us all that humility, that you would give each one of us the understanding that it's not about who we make ourselves to be in this world, God, but it is who you have made us. You've made us your sons. You've made us your daughters. You have raised us from death to life in Christ. We praise you for that, God. We praise you and give you all of the glory for that work that you have done, that work that you are doing, and the work that you will continue to do until you come again. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.